All right, Mark chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 9 to 13 in a series we're calling Sign of the Times. Let me ask you this question. What is the difference between these two men that are up on the screen? LeBron James and Ben Simmons. Now, now, now you, you might not know much about the NBA. You say, I, heard, I know the first guy's name. I don't really know the second guy's name. That's fine. Let me tell you a little bit about them. Both of these men are elite athletes. Both of these men are physical specimens. Both of these men grew up playing basketball from diaper, age of diapers, had basketball in their hand. Both of these men won basically every award you can win in their youth. Both of them came into the NBA with overwhelming expectations that they were going to be superstars. In fact, many said that Ben Simmons would become LeBron James 2.0 intentionally on Slam Magazine when uh, Ben Simmons uh, was on this. They, they put him in the exact same stance to model that very reality. Now, how is it that LeBron James will go down as the second best NBA player in the history of the game? <laughs> And why is it that Ben Simmons might go down as the greatest choker that the game has ever seen? Wow, got a lot of clap. You guys clap more for this stuff than you did when I say, like, spiritual things. Come on now. No, but it is true. It is true. What is it that makes a difference between these two men? I think it's summed up in one word. The word is pressure. Pressure. See, when it comes to pressure on the basketball court to make the shot when it counts, when it comes to taking on the responsibility of the team and saying, I'm going to put the team on my back, when it comes to, when it comes to the pressure of when your team is behind and you're headed to the playoffs or you're headed into that big moment, when the tough gets going, one most often rises to the occasion while the other most often crumbles in defeat. That's the difference. Now, I don't really mean to pick so much on Ben Simmons. Well, I kind of do, right? He's like the biggest villain in Philly uh, history. But, but we, we, if we're really honest with ourselves, we're probably just like in our lives, especially in our spiritual lives, we might look a little bit more like Ben Simmons than we do LeBron, <laughs> Now, why am I saying all this? Well, we've been talking a lot about the goal, one of our goals as a church over the next couple of years, which is to build resilient disciples of Jesus in an increasingly post-Christian culture. What is it that makes or builds resiliency in the Christian life? What is it? I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't how talented you are or whether you're a physical specimen or not, or it's not about how smart you are or how charming you are. None of those things matter when it comes to building resilience. I think one of the keys to building resilience is the very thing that we just talked about. It's how do we handle pressure in the Christian life? How do we handle that pressure when it comes? What do we do when we begin to realize that following Christ is going to come with hardships? What do we do when some of the things we're praying for and asking for, God doesn't always give us? What do we do when we get disappointed with God? 
What do we do when unforeseen troubles and pain and heartache come into our life? When we suffer the loss of someone or something that we love? What do we do when we're trying to live out our Christian faith in a culture that is increasingly set up against the things of God and against his teaching? What happens when we're criticized or marginalized because our beliefs are no longer deemed acceptable? Do we rise to the occasion or do we crumble under the pressure? This is the very question that Jesus is asking. He's provoking. It is the very thing that he's training in his disciples in Mark 13. He wants them to be ready to face the pressure, and pressure they will indeed face. And so we're going to learn, in this message I'm calling Time to Be Resilient, we're going to learn four keys to building resilience in our discipleship to Christ when, not if, but when we face pressure because it surely comes to all of us if we know Jesus. Now remember, we're in this mini-series within the Gospel of Mark uh, in chapter 13 in a series we're calling Sign of the Times. We're examining the Olivet Discourse, which is a teaching of Jesus that he gave up on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so that's where he's at. We said last week that what makes this teaching so challenging is that um, there's interpretive challenges throughout uh, this chapter. Because Jesus is going to talk about two cataclysmic uh, events in history, one that happens during the disciples' lifetime in 70 AD, when the temple of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Roman army, and the other cataclysmic event that's going to happen at some point in the future, that is kind of the culmination of all things, the end of days, the apocalypse, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. How much of this is about the first event, the destruction of the temple? How much of this is about the second event? How much of it is about both? That's kind of what's up for a bit of debate, okay? But we're going to focus on the main and plain things throughout uh, this, this series. The next two weeks, we're going to be really getting into some of those interpretive, uh, difficult, interpretively difficult sections of Scripture. This one's fairly straightforward that we look at, verses 9 to 13, and we're going to see our first key to building resilience in our discipleship when we face pressure. Key number one is being prepared, is being prepared for pressure. Look at how Jesus starts it off, verse 9, you must be on your guard. You must be on your guard. Now, this is interestingly the very same word This being on your guard is the same word Jesus used back in verse 5 that we looked at last week. Remember in verse 5 when he says, watch out that you don't get deceived? Same Greek word. It's the word blepo, which essentially means to be discerning, to be careful, looking around, to be standing firm in the truth, right? And so he says in verse 5, don't get blepoed, right? Don't get deceived, by the world around you, you stand firm in the truth. And now he's saying, don't get blepoed, right? Don't get, don't get um, afraid. Be prepared for the pressure that is about to come to you in the form of persecution. Now, that persecution is going to come from a variety of fronts. And so Jesus is saying, be prepared. It's coming. It's coming. I don't want you to get caught off guard. It's coming, and as we know from G.I. Joe, right, knowing is half the battle. Some of you remember that? 
Knowing is half the battle. And that works that way in our lives, right? If, if I'm about to go into a meeting and I know I'm going to get resistance for an idea or decision that I'm making, if I'm prepared with that, I can be poised and ready for that conversation. So can you. Right? That's, that's how it works. But if I'm going into that meeting like, you know, everything's great, my life is awesome, everyone's going to love what I'm going to say, and then I get resistance, I get blindsided, I'm less prepared. I'm a little bit, you know, not happy. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples on three fronts of persecution that they're going to face. Check this out, verse 9. Jesus says, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogue. Jesus here is saying that you are going to get hit from the religious front with persecution. That is, it's going to come from your own people. It's going to come from your own religious community. It's going to come from your own church, your own synagogue, your own gathering where you worship. And of course, this happened. Now, it first happened with Jesus. And everything we're going to talk about, Jesus kind of models it first. Because everything that happens to Jesus kind of eventually happens to his disciples. So how did it work with Jesus? Well, just a couple of days from this very teaching, Jesus got dragged into and before the Sanhedrin in the synagogue. That is the ruling elders of Jerusalem in his trial. And just months after this, after Jesus' ascension, the same, very same thing happens to the disciples, doesn't it? We get to Acts chapter 4, and we see Peter and John standing before the religious leaders, thrown into prison for healing a man in the name of Jesus. Or think of Acts 6, when Stephen stands, uh, gets dragged into the synagogue under false pretenses and gets stoned to death. Or how about the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24, when he's going through his list of persecutions and trials, and he says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. This man has been flogged. He knows what that's like. He says, expect it. It's coming for you guys. It's coming for you guys. But not just from the religious front. He continues in verse nine. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Friends, you're going to get dragged into the secular front. You're going to get dragged into the culture that is set against me. Again, Jesus sets the pattern pattern here. Not only is he arrested and stands before the religious leaders, Jesus also stands before the Roman leadership. He stands before Pontius Pilate, and he's given a Roman uh, trial. And so the same thing was coming for his disciples. And this is what happens. is the pattern in Acts chapter 16. We see Paul and Silas. Remember what happens to them? They stand before the Roman authorities in Philippi and get thrown into prison. Paul stands trial before King Agrippa. He's eventually sentenced to house arrest when he makes his appeal to Caesar in Rome. The book of Acts ends actually with Paul on house arrest, chained to a Roman guard. This is exactly what happens. Prepare for it. Of course, we know in the first century, the Roman emperors horribly persecuted Christians with unimaginable torture, means of torture. So the pressure comes from the religious front, it comes from the secular front, but Jesus wants to know an even more painful reality that is about to come to them. In verse 12, he says, brother will betray brother to death, father 
betraying his child. Children will, will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. He says not only is it going to come on the religious and secular front, it's even going to come on the family front. Your own family members turning you in. Man, can you imagine how painful that would have been for these disciples to hear this? To think that in the future their own children might betray them. Their own parents, their own brothers and sisters turning them in. This is painful. This wasn't the first time that they would have heard this. However, Matthew 10, 34, when Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Say, what is Jesus saying here? Here's what he's saying. He's saying that the gospel of Jesus is offensive. The gospel of Jesus causes division. Why? Because of the content of the message. What does the gospel say? Well, it says that we're all sinners. That's a popular message, isn't it? It's never been a popular message. Guess what? You're a sinner. The gospel also says there's nothing that you can do to change that on your own. You can't do a certain number of good things. You can't make yourself a a really good person worthy of God. Is that a popular message? It's not a popular message. The gospel says there's only one way to get to the Father. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. And that's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name upon, under heaven upon which must, men might call upon except the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one way, and that is Jesus Christ. There's only one sacrifice given, that's Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins. This is not a popular message. It is good news. Oh boy, it's good news to those who believe. But it's not a popular message. It will bring division. This is what Jesus is saying. It was divisive back then. It's divisive today. It can divide households. This was really part of the history of the the early church. Many converts to Christianity were disowned and in some cases beaten and even killed by their own family members. One of the things that made the early church so powerful, such a powerful force, is that people that were disowned by their families, the church kind of became a family for them. Jesus says, expect it. It's coming to you. So you say, man, well, wow, this is, that's, that's hard. I, I feel really bad. It, that, I feel really bad for those poor Christians in the first century. Man, that they had to face these things. I mean, this sounds terrible. They'd endure all this persecution, all this rejection. But Nate, I'm not quite sure what any of this has to do with me. You know, I mean, we don't, deal with persecution in the modern times, right? I mean, we don't have emperors throwing us to lions. We have freedom here. We have rights. We can, you know, believe whatever we want to believe without fear of someone, you know, flogging us with 39 lashes, whatever that is, right? So what's in here for us? So I want to share, you, share with you three thoughts about how this is relevant for us today. First of all, Just because we might not be seeing overt persecution in America doesn't mean that it doesn't happen all the time in other parts of the world. 
To the contrary, I don't know if you know this, but there's more persecution of Christians worldwide today than there ever been, has been in the history of the planet. According to a 2021 Open Doors Ministry Report, did you know that 13 Christians worldwide are killed for their faith every single day? That 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked every day? That every day 12 Christians are unjustly imprisoned or arrested, and five are abducted every single day. 309 million people live in a place that is extreme, has extreme levels of persecution. And what that means is that one out of every eight Christian lives in a place of persecution. So just because we might not be experiencing it, friends, doesn't mean it's not happening. And so we need to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the world who face persecution. Be praying for them. Be supporting them. Be praying that they will continue to be resilient as they face incredible pressure. For our brothers and sisters in Nigeria, for example, who uh, are, are constantly facing the Islamic group uh, Boko Haram, that persecutes them, or our brothers and sisters in China, many of which when they preach the gospel, it's considered a threat to the communist uh, uh, powers and are whisked away to camps, and who knows what, what's happening to many of them. Be praying for our brothers and sisters. But second point of relevance here to this, just because we don't experience overt persecution today doesn't mean that it's always going to be that way. Don't think just because we're living in a society of freedom right now that that means for the rest of your lifetime, it'll always be that way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'm sure, when he was in his teens, did not think that Germany was going to become a hostile place for his faith. And yet within his own lifetime, it happened. Friends, our, our freedom is always tenuous. Times change. And so we need to be just as prepared as the disciples were. But the third point, and really this is the one I want to uh, um, uh, commend to you or have you think about, is that we face subtle forms of persecution and suffering and pressure today. Now let me caveat this and say, not all of what some Christians call persecution today is actually persecution. Right? Some of it is just the consequence of being a jerk, okay? <laughs> so, you know, if you're like really snarky and not necessarily combative on social media and someone pushes back on you and calls you a name or unfriends you, you're not being persecuted, okay? <laughs> so just like, you know, settle down a little bit on that one. But there are subtle and even not so subtle forms of persecution today. Some of you know this in your own family because when you became a Christian, you were cast out of your family. Or you were, you know, it's really combative now anytime you're with them. They argue with you all the time or belittle you or don't invite you to gatherings as a family anymore. Some of you know what that feels like. We used to have a woman uh, that was a member of our church here um, who grew up in a, in a Muslim household. I won't share a name or her situation because this is still a, a real situation today. Some of you might know her. But she lived with a, a reality, a fear of her dad finding out that her and her mom became Christians because she was afraid of the financial uh, retribution that could come with that, uh, use of illegal means to harm them. This was real for her. 
That might be an extreme situation, but don't think that doesn't happen today. The other pressures that we face come through people bullying and attacking Christian values. It's sort of like a proxy war on the faith. And let me give you an example of that. You know, no employer would tell you that you're not allowed to be a Christian or that you can't believe what you believe. That's not going to happen, at least not right now. But they might tell you that you're not allowed to talk about your faith. Or they might tell you that you have to teach something that is contrary to a Christian worldview that you have. Or they might tell you to support causes that you can't morally stand behind. Those things are real. And there could be consequences for you. It could cost your job or promotion. These are real things today. My brother, uh, a few years ago, was working in upper, management, um, in upper management in a large investment company. And the management decided that all the managers were, were going to be asked to um, hang an LGBT flag outside their office. And they, they were all expected to do this to show a, a lot, you know, that they were an ally and supported the cause. Now, my brother's a Christian, uh, a biblical worldview on these issues. He was in kind of a, a tough spot here because on one hand, he, he, we stand for love and we stand for uh, hospitality and treating everybody with equal dignity and honor, regardless of your sexual orientation or your gender uh, uh, you know, label that you have. But on the other hand, to hang the flag would show a support of a belief, a worldview that he just couldn't support. And so here he is in this difficult position. What will he do? And some of you are faced with very similar kinds of challenges right now in your workplace. What will you do? What happens when the pressure is turned up on you? Certainly the pressure comes just from trying to live out a Christian life of integrity and being mocked or ridiculed or marginalized or unfairly labeled because of our faith. Here's the deal. Here's the reality. If you are in the public square in Delaware, if you work at a secular company in Delaware, if you go to a public school in Delaware, and you are living out your faith with integrity, you absolutely will face ridicule, labels, marginalization. Like, you absolutely will. And you say, well, I'm not. I might ask you or submit to you, maybe it's because you're not really living out your faith. And maybe your life is not distinguished from any other person that's there. Because if you're really living it out, there's no way that these worldviews are not going to come into conflict. They will absolutely come into conflict. Are we prepared? Jesus is preparing us and that is half the battle. Key number two, don't worry, they won't all be this long. Key number two, stay on mission. Stay on mission despite the pressure. In this warning of persecution, Jesus also gives them a powerful promise. He says in verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Now, I understand this to mean that before the end of the temple destruction in Jerusalem, that the gospel must first be preached to the Gentile nations. I think this is what Jesus is saying. I do not believe that Jesus here is saying that every single people group on the planet has to first hear the gospel in order for Jesus to come back again. Some people believe that. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I believe in an imminent return of Jesus 
which means that there's no other checklist of things that needs to happen before Jesus returns. So I think this is what Jesus is doing with this, with this um, encouragement, this promise. He is saying, don't worry about the pressure that's coming your way. Don't back down from the pressure that's on you. The gospel is going to have a great impact. The gospel is going to go beyond the Jews in Jerusalem. The gospel is going to the nations. It's going to the Gentile people. And you don't have to worry that something's going to happen to you before that happens. You go out with the mission and trust me that I will empower the gospel to be spread. That's what he's saying. It's an encouragement. Don't lose heart. You're going to be successful in the impact of the gospel. There's going to be unbelievable impact on transforming lives through the powerful message. See, he's casting a vision here in the midst of persecution so that they might not give up. Despite the hatred, despite the persecution, despite the powers that come against them, the gospel's going around the world. And the same is true for us today. It's the same mission. Jesus handed down this mission to the church today in our generation. It's why our mission is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and help them follow him. That's the mission that every single one of us has been sent with. It's not just my mission as the pastor. It's not just the mission of our pastors and our staff. It's not just the mission of our deacons. It's your mission as an individual Christian, where you are, in your location, until Jesus returns. You know, what if we took on the same attitude that the early church did? In spite of the pressure, I'm going to continue being a witness. I'm going to continue being an ambassador. What could happen in our generation? What could happen in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our community? Do you ever think that maybe God has you exactly where you are, in the community that you live in, in the school that you attend, on the football team that you're on, in the company that you work for, in the family that you're in, to be his ambassador for such a time as this? Have you ever considered that God didn't put me in your workplace? He puts you there. God didn't put me at Comores. He puts you there. God didn't put Pastor Matthew at Brandywine High School. He puts you there. God didn't put Todd or Terry or Christy in your neighborhood, but he puts you there. Why? You might be the greatest representative that those people in your community might ever see for Jesus Christ. Do you accept that mission? Do you see that as your mission? Resilient disciples share their faith. I love what my friend Leo uh, likes to say. I'm a mortgage broker, but that's just my cover. That's just my cover. My real job is to be an ambassador of Christ in the real estate market. He's got it. What's your cover? What's your cover? Key number three, rely on the Spirit's power through pressure. The Spirit wants to empower us. Verse 11, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what you will say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, it's the Holy Spirit. 
What an encouragement. Think about that. The third person of the Trinity is speaking through these disciples when they're standing before kings, when they're standing before powerful people. What an amazing truth. God is still in the business of doing just that. God will empower us. He will guide us for ministry and missions. Here's the key. He's waiting. He's waiting for willing candidates to use. He's waiting for willing candidates to use. Have you ever, maybe you have this experience that I do. It's the hardest people I have time sharing my faith with are the people that are closest to me. Strangers, like any day, you know, I'll just, no problem. Like friends and people who know me, I get a little terrified. I get a little freaked out about that. I get a little skittish about that. And I wonder if you do as well. The, the hardest group of people for me to reach was, was my friends from high school. Because my friends of high school, like, they knew me. They knew what I was like. And when I became a Christian, I was terrified to tell my high school buddies that I became a Christian. I knew that they were going to make fun of me. I knew that they were going to ridicule me and dismiss me and say, I was just a fad, like, you're going to, all that's going to go away. And time after time, I crumbled under the pressure. Until one day, my friends and I, we were going to go to Ocean City, Maryland for a weekend. And this time, I said, I'm going to share my faith. Like this time, like, Lord, if you give me an opportunity, I'm not going to chicken out. I'm going to do it. And I was praying about it. And I was asking my friends back home, my Christian friends, pray for me. And so we show up, Ocean City, Maryland. It's like 10 or 15 of us there. We're all hanging out in in a hotel room uh, at night. And one of my buddies and I are out in the balcony. And we're just kind of looking up. And he says... He says to me, out of nowhere, he goes, you ever wonder what happens to us when we die? (laughs) I was like, seriously, God? Like, this is how it's going to happen? He's like, all right. So I pray real quick, and I'm like, actually, Andy, like, here's what I think. And here's what, you know, and I started launching into the gospel. I started launching into what God's done in my life and what I believed. And I said, Andy, you have an opportunity today. Don't wait. You know, God, God wants you to be his child now. Accept Christ now before it's too late. And Andy, I mean, he, had, he did not think anything like that was about to come out of my mouth. And so he's just looking at me wide-eyed. And he's like, whoa, man, that's super heavy. He's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it is. Like, you know. And so I was like, all right, Lord, like, check the box. I did it, you know. And so we walk back in, and all of us are sitting around. All these guys are about to, let's just say, go out and have a good time that evening, um, and uh, go out to Secrets. Okay, that's where they were headed. Um, and so, and so uh, Andy goes, hey, everybody, hey, hold on. Before we go out, Nate has some really important things he wants to tell us about what happens after we die. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. And I was like, seriously? This is how all this is going to go down. And so it's like, all right, Lord. And so I just launch into the same thing with all of my buddies as they're all standing there Pre-gaming, essentially. (laughs) Now, let me tell you, I don't remember much of what I said, but one thing I know, it was not me speaking that day. It was not. I was terrified. I would have been bumbling with my words, but the Lord just was, you know, empowering me, speaking through me from the, the Spirit, giving me the courage I need. Do you trust that he can do that today in your life? Some of us are terrified of opening our mouths. 
What would I say? What would my friends think? What if they stumped me on a question? The Spirit is looking for willing candidates. And if you pray and you ask the Lord and say, I, I will do it. You give me an opportunity, I will say it. You trust that he will, tell, he will he's not going to leave you flapping out there in the wind. He will meet you where you are so you can be effective. Key number four and finally is perseverance to the end of pressure. Jesus concludes this whole thing. He says, here's the deal. Everyone will hate you because of me. Oh, thanks for the encouragement, Jesus. Everyone's going to hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I think what Jesus is saying here to these first century Christians who are living in this time of persecution, he says, even though you're going to experience extreme pressure, you stand firm to the end, even if it means the end of your life. Why? Because heaven and eternity and salvation is just over the next mountain. It's just around the bend. It is coming, guys. You stand firm. You endure. Let's be clear. Don't be misunderstood here. He's not saying that we earn salvation by our perseverance. He's saying we prove that we have the th real thing by our perseverance. As one uh, theologian says, superficial faith will collapse under persecution. We don't keep our salvation by gritting our teeth and enduring. We demonstrate our salvation by enduring, and here's the key point, through the power of the Spirit who keeps us. It's his job to keep us. And we have a salvation that is a gift of grace. It's authenticated in the midst of suffering, end quote. And it's ultimately all God who does it. It's why that great benediction from Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's all him. We just hold fast. That's all we do, hold fast. So what does a resilient disciple look like in the face of pressure? It looks like being prepared for it, expecting that it's coming our way and standing firm. It means staying on mission with the gospel despite the pressure that comes our way. It means relying on the Spirit's power. He'll, he'll empower you with the words to say. It means persevering to the end, not by our strength, but his, just holding fast to him. So let me just ask you this one question. What is one pressure in your life right now that is testing the resilience of your faith? What is one pressure that is testing the resilience of your faith? Is it a moral stance at work? Is it the peer pressure of your friends? Is it a barrier of, of health or some other financial thing in your, play, in, in your life? What's one pressure that's testing your resilience? I want you to think about that. I want you to take a couple of moments as the band comes up and we're going to sing a final song together. You take a couple of moments right where you are and I want you to use that connection card that's in the seat back in front of you or the one online. And if you would, just write down a word or a phrase or a prayer of an answer to that question. What's the pressure that you're facing that's testing your resilience so that we can pray right along with you that the Lord would give you the strength to endure in this season?
you take some time to reflect on that with the Spirit.